Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. We're in a series that we're calling Reset. And as we get into the message this morning, we're going to answer two questions. First one, why reset? Well, if you have grandkids, you know that they like to unset and upset things. Therefore, they have to be reset. My youngest grandson, Carter, loves to be in the car and push every button, turn every knob. If you're sitting there, the wipers are on, the lights are coming on, then they're going off. And lo and behold, every time he's in my wife's car, once he's not there, I have to reset all the radio stations. I don't know how he's figured out how to change them, but they're always gone. And there's still stuff he's unset that I haven't figured out how to reset yet. But as we go through life, things get unset and upset. And so they have to be reset. And we're discovering in Genesis that that's what God does. God has to regularly reset things because time and trouble, difficulties and upset comes. And so God works to reset. The ultimate reset comes with Jesus and the gospel. But there are lots of little resets that lead up to the big one. Well, that raises a second question. Well, why Genesis then? Can't we do reset from a book in the New Testament, something we're more familiar with? Why Genesis? Um, have you ever lost anything? You know, your wallet, keys, kids, spouse, uh, key fight. You've lost that? What do you do when you lose something? You retrace your steps, right? You think where you were, what you did, and as you retrace your steps, eventually you find where you left it, and so you retrace your steps to the place of what was lost. Well, in Genesis, we discovered that's where the stuff was lost. If we're now alienated from God, where was our relationship with God lost? If we find difficulty dealing with other people, where was that community lost? Where was our sense of true self lost? And lo and behold, they were all lost in the early part of Genesis. And so as we retrace our steps, we're doing that not just to reset, but to discover what was lost, how it was lost, and how it can be regained. Well, this morning, we're going to go out of order a little bit. I know you guys did uh, Noah last week. I was in Quakertown, and we did Cain and Abel, and Carlos and I switched today. So we're going to do Cain and Abel. We're going to reset the order. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 4. And Genesis 4, we read the famous story of Cain and Abel. But I want you to realize when you turn the page from Genesis 3 to Genesis 4, a lot has changed. In fact, verse 24 of chapter 3 says that they were thrown, here it is, after God, right, threw man out of the garden, he placed them on the east side of the Garden of Eden and cherubim in a flaming, flashing sword back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. But I want you to understand this. The internal changes were much greater than the external changes. The external changes are, yeah, they're thrown out of the garden. Yeah, they can't go back in. But the internal change inside Adam and Eve, now they have a bent away from God. Now the default mode of their heart is to not live in alignment with him, but to live in opposition to him. That internal change is much greater than the external change. And we're going to see that lived out in chapter four. So follow along as I read beginning at verse three and I read through, I guess, verse 13 or so. 
So here we go, the story of Cain and Abel. Verse three. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, "Uh, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your, blood, your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. That's kind of an interesting story. Let me tell you how we're going to approach it and then we'll do it. We're going to look at sin. That's kind of the main theme, right? Ever since Genesis 3, that's kind of a growing thing. It snowballs for the rest of the Bible. So we're going to take a look at sin, uh, try to understand what's going on and what we can see illustrated and demonstrated in the passage. But then we're going to take a look at God. And here's the fascinating thing. When you read a passage like Cain and Abel, and yeah, God shows up, God does this, but we often lose sight of what God's doing because the incidents on the surface are so heinous. And well, we need to take a look at what God's doing in the story itself. And then thirdly, we'll look at how this passage, how this account is a pointer to the ultimate solution. All right, here's the first thing we learn about sin. Here's kind of the main verse. Uh, verse, there it is, verse seven. God says, if you do what is right, you won't, you won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching out the door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. I want to tell you three things about sin that are clearly illustrated in this passage. Number one, sin is serious. You know, if you're a Bible reader, you don't even have to read the Bible that much. The one thing you notice over and over again as you read the Bible is how seriously God takes sin and how flippantly we take sin. A few weeks ago, I said, we often approach sin as an innocent indulgence, right? It's kind of a laugh word. Oh, I committed a sin. I had an extra dessert last night. Oh, I committed a sin. I told a little fib. Oh, I said a bad word the other day. We take sin flippantly. We take sin innocently. We laugh. When you read the Bible, you discover God takes sin seriously. Sin is not an innocent indulgence. And sin is not an intolerant judgment. 
In our world, to look at someone and say what they're doing or what they've done is sinful, you're immediately a, you're immediately a narrow-minded bigot. You're a religious fanatic. You're looking down on these people. Well, wait a minute. Here, here's what our culture has done with both of those. Sin is an innocent indulgence and intolerant judgment. Here's what our culture's done. If we do not accurately diagnose the problem, we stand no shot of getting the right cure. And so if sin is just an innocent indulgence, it's no big deal. You don't need a cure. If sin is intolerant judgment, then understanding sin that way is to be forbidden and pushed to the side. What's the end result? You can't get to the real solution without the diagnosis. The Bible says clearly sin is serious. Sin is rebellion against God. It's not innocent. It's not an intolerance. Sin is rebellion. Remember we talked about the triangle? Sin is removing God from his rightful place and lo and behold, stepping into that place yourself. And so now you and I call the shot. Now we determine what's right and wrong. We determine good and evil. God said, that, that, that's my job. But when we take that over, we rebel against God. Sin is serious. The God, and God takes sin seriously. Now here's the next thing you need to know about sin. Sin is dangerous. It's not just serious, something you need to get kind of focus on. Sin is dangerous. Um, I love the illustration in Genesis 4-7. Uh, God shows up and says, Cain, uh, why are you angry? Why are you discouraged? Why are you downcast? And then he says, sin is crouching at your door, waiting to pounce. You can rule, you can master it, but it's crouching at the door. Okay, now, that word crouching is a word that's used for large cats, leopards, lions, tigers, and they're waiting to pounce. Um, in fact, if you have a house cat, you know exactly how, I, I knew it was there, right? I knew it was there. Sin is like a cat. Cats are like sins. I knew it was there. Here it is. Um, what's the, if a spite, if you have a house cat and it's just kind of laying around, minding its own business, staying away from everybody, and all of a sudden a spider comes down the wall and begins to walk across the floor, what does the cat do? The cat immediately crouches down, right? What's the cat do? The cat is making himself small, very still very silent. And then the cat kind of crawls up on its victim, right? And it crawls up. And then at the last second, the unsuspecting spider is swatted or pounced upon. That's the metaphor that God uses for sin. He says, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. What does crouching at the door mean? Just like a cat. Sin makes itself small. Sin makes it Seem like it's no big deal. Isn't that right? An innocent indulgence. It's making itself small. It's concealing its true nature. It's making the results seem benign. The results are no big deal. That's what sin does. Cain's going to find that out. But we don't even need Cain for this one, do we? You and I know that reality. It starts out small. Crouching at the door, no big deal. Sin looks smaller than it is. 
It intellectually hides. It behaviorally hides. Sin is just no big deal. It's just an innocent indulgence. Oh, you're being intolerant to say that. And at the last second, it pounces. And all of a sudden in your life, you wonder what happened. All hell breaks loose. Crouching at the door. Seemingly benign. Seemingly innocent. Sin's dangerous. Uh, One other thing we see illustrated here, but that actually becomes full-blown in the Bible, Sin is addictive. Um, Think back, I hate to do this to you, think back in one of your habits that you're not too proud of and you wouldn't want any of us to know of. Here's my guess. That started out seemingly innocently, didn't it? You could have said yes, you could have said no. But as time goes on, you discover it's harder to say no. And today, you can't say no. Here's how it works. In the beginning, you do sin. Not long after that, sin does you. Ask any addict. You could say yes or no to the first drink. Yes or no to the first pill. Maybe in the middle, it becomes more difficult. Today, there's no choice involved at all. In fact, sin's kind of like a kind of like a cone laying on its side, right? A very little tiny beginning. But boy, the ramifications grow and grow. And as the cone expands, it's so large that eventually that little sin that seems so innocent now consumes your entire life. Every thought, many of your actions all tied together. Boy, the Bible has a much more accurate picture than our culture does, doesn't it? The Bible says sin's serious. Don't play with it. Sin's dangerous. You may start out doing sin. It's eventually going to do you. Sin is addictive. Sin's not something you want to play with. Um, Let me give you a few examples. Just to make sure that what I'm saying, you're saying, oh, yeah, this is really good. That person next to me really needs this. Uh, Here we go. And let, Let me give you a few examples that fit our definition of sin, right? It's serious, dangerous, and addictive. Here's one. Um, how about when it comes to grudges? Any, don't raise your hand. Any grudge holders here? Let, let's be honest. Every one of us has people that we can't stand. Some of them are in this room, right? Some of them are on this platform. I understand. We all have people we can't stand, and we know why we can't stand them. Now, isn't it funny? Those grudges feel like, and we explain them to ourselves, as righteous indignation. I'm holding a grudge against that person because that person, and well, here's the bottom line. Underneath your holding of the grudge, underneath your self-righteousness is superiority. I'll let you know a little secret. You cannot hold a grudge against someone without feeling superior to that person. You look down on them. You think you're better. I would never do that. That may seem innocent. That's serious. That's dangerous. That's addictive. That grudge will snowball, and before you know it, that grudge is determining where you can go, where you won't go, why you'll say this, why you'll avoid that. Funny how that works, right? How about this one? Fantasy? 
Certainly sexual fantasy, right? But how about other kinds of fantasy too? Um, here's, here's the seed behind every fantasy. I know how my life should go. And it's a fantasy because not, God's not coming through giving me the life I know I should have. That's pretty serious, isn't it? That's pretty dangerous. And you may be saying, yeah, but wait, don't athletes say, we have to fantasize, is it hitting the right shot? You have to fantasize the ball. Yeah, but here's what fan fantasy is rooted in, you knowing better than God. And fantasy is always you living in the future. Well, if you're living in the future, the life that you think you should have and God's not giving you, you're not living in the present. And so we're missing all the opportunities that God's bringing our way. Huh, that too How about another one? How about when it comes to work? Um, work's a perfect example of how the Bible threads the needle. We blow it on both sides. Some of you in this room have been and still are workaholics. Others of you are lazy bums. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just telling the truth, right? Um, some, some of us think life is nothing more than leisure, and other people thinking life is nothing more than work. Uh, I read a book a number of years ago. Really, I'm not even sure you get it anymore. It's by a woman named Jean Fleming. And here's the title. The title of the book tells you all you need to know. It's called Between Walden and the Whirlwind. If you're Thoreau readers, you know uh, Lake Walden was the place of leisure, the place of rest. Just kind of hang out on Lake Walden with nothing to do. The whirlwind is crazy activity, running a thousand miles an hour. And Jean Fleming says, God calls us to live between Walden, leisure and laziness, and the whirlwind, workaholism and non-ending activity. Huh, are you falling off one side or the other? How about when it comes to um, how you look? Oh, you're just looking healthy. You go to the gym and work out, you eat, so, so, so you're healthy. No, you're doing it so other people ooh and on drool over you. That's why you're doing it. Where are you finding your identity? You know, we could play with this. How about when it comes to money? Is your view of money out of sync with what God says? I'll tell you, the Bible tells us how you treat money is serious. It's a window into your heart. But if you treat it incorrectly, money's dangerous. And if you're not careful, regardless of how much you have, it'll become addicting. Your life will be consumed with how to get more or protect what you have. We can take any area of life. And all of a sudden, Genesis 4-7 rings pretty true, doesn't it? Sin is serious. It's dangerous. And it's addictive. So be careful how you live. Well, let's move out of that cesspool and talk about God, talk about something good here. Um, God shows up in a number of different ways, and, and they're, really, they're really insightful. So I'm, I'm going to kind of read a verse and then I'll explain to you how God's showing up, at least in my mind, from the verse. So here's the first one. God shows up and asks Cain questions. Cain, why are, why are you angry? Remember, he accepted, God accepted Abel's sacrifice. Cain, why are you so ticked off? Cain, why are you downcast? Notice, God comes and asks questions before the act. Cain hasn't killed Abel yet. God shows up before that as a counselor. He doesn't show up as a teacher. 
He doesn't show up, you know, as a, to hammer him. He shows up with questions. Cain, something's going on in your heart that's not right. Cain, examine your motives. Why are you angry? Why are you down? Boy, those are good questions for all of us in this room, right? Many of us, you know, kind of lean toward the anger side. Why are you angry? My guess is most of our anger is not going to be righteous anger. Why are you so downcast? Why are you discouraged? Why are you so anxious? God comes as a counselor to get at the reasons behind what's going on. He's, he's loving Cain. He's coming to Cain, hoping that Cain will come to his senses. And, and then we read this. Then God said, this is after the act. Hey, uh, Cain, I uh, can't seem to find Abel. You know where your brother is now? God has not lost track of Abel, all right? Like, it's not like God looked all around and Abel's nowhere to be found. God knows where Abel is. Abel knows where he is. Cain knows where he is, too. This is not a question seeking information. This is a question doing diagnosis. God, the revealer, wants Cain to repent. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't show up. God, God says, we need to love, protect the garden, protect your family members. Cain kills his brother. And you want to see grace? God doesn't smack him flat right there in the middle of chapter four. He shows up and says, where's your brother Abel? Where, where'd he go? He wants Cain to say, God, I killed my brother. I regret that I did that. Is there any way you could forgive me? God is giving Cain an opportunity to confess, an opportunity to come clean. But even more incredible than that, look at this verse. But the Lord said to Cain, okay, Cain gets all, all afraid, right? Well, God, wait a minute, other people, and I know there are lots of questions. Where all these other, where'd all these other people come from? Right? People in the cities, right? We only have Adam and Eve and Cain's their son. And where do all these other people in the cities come from? All right, look, they're not thousands of people in the cities. They're all relatives, all right? There's probably small little groups of people living together. And since they're all relatives, they're all going to know who Cain is. And so Cain, we know Cain is not repentant because just like you and I, when we don't repent, he fears the punishment. He doesn't care about the sin. If you're really confessing, if you're repentant, you're more concerned with the sin than the punishment. Cain could give a rip about the sin. He fears the punishment. Other people are going to kill him. Well, you killed your brother. And what does God say? I will protect you. What? God is not only interested in the innocent, God is even merciful to the guilty. And the name of that tune is, you and I should be grateful. Because if there was no protection and mercy for the guilty, this room would be empty this morning. But isn't it amazing that Cain kills his brother, murders him, God does not enact the death penalty on Cain. He could have. God, God does not. In fact, he puts a mark on Cain to protect him. God shows mercy to the guilty as well as care 
to the repentant. Not a bad God, huh? Well, we still have uh, one section to go here. So where's this all going? Yeah, this, we're only in Genesis 4, right? And so we're in chapter 4 out of like 1,200 chapters of the Bible. And so a whole bunch of other stuff's going to come. Well, here are a couple of signposts. Um, the first signpost is, and we need to recognize, at times we need good advice. Now, so let me give you some good, helpful advice, but I want you to know where good, helpful advice fits. Helpful advice, good advice, will alert you to the problem. Good advice does not solve the problem. It will alert you to the problem. It will help you accurately diagnose the ailment. It will not cure the ailment. Your cure, my cure, is beyond self-help. So the advice is not going to fix the problem. The advice will alert you to the problem. All right, so here's a... First bit of helpful advice. Remember sin's danger. Are you convinced now sin's dangerous? It's serious, right? It's a, I hope I convinced you that. We took all that time telling you that. I had to remind myself too. Um, it's dangerous. It's frightful. Stay away. Um, so for example, even though Mike Tyson's real old now, you don't start a fight with him. Um, Do you ever notice like horror movie? I'm not a horror movie guy. I can't sleep when I watch them. But I know this. If it wasn't for stupid, stupid people, there'd be no horror movie. Uh, you, like, I, I like that Geico commercial. Oh, we have to get away. Should we get in the, in the car that the engine's running? No, let's hide behind the chainsaws. <laughs> yeah, here's how horror movies work, right? They all kind of have the same thing. You read the newspaper. There are a number of murders happening in the neighborhood. All of a sudden, there's a thunderstorm. All the electricity goes out in the house. A young girl's home alone. She hears a bump in the basement. So she goes down to investigate. <laughs> This is an IQ test, right? If those three things happen, you don't go into the basement where the noise is. Oh, yeah. Often sin is an IQ test. Here's a moral of that story. Don't be stupid. Sin's dangerous. It's serious addictive. Don't play. You can't win. Here's another good bit of advice. Live in community. There's a whole bunch of junk in our lives that other people see that we don't see. You ever notice that? Like sometimes the light will go and say, I can't. Like, some people think I'm arrogant. And they say, really? <laughs> you could have fooled me. Everybody knows you're arrogant except you. Everybody knows you're greedy except you. Even you live in community, you have the opportunity for people to say, let me say what, I, let me share your, what I'm noticing here. I kind of think you're not seeing a full picture. And here's a, another important one. Assume that criticism is partly correct. Uh, here we go. True confession time. How many of you have ever been criticized? Raise your hand. If you're married, you've been criticized a few times today already, but you know, generally, right? Um, now, now, here's where you really have to be honest. In all that criticism, was there ever at least a grain of truth? There's always a grain of truth, right? We want to exclude the 97% that's not. There's always a grain of truth. Assume the criticism is partly correct. What do we do when I'm criticized? Here's what I do. Person comes to criticize, 
Well, let me tell you a few things about you, pal. Don't you have mirrors at your house? Let me tell you what I No, no, the wrong response, right? The response is, assume it's partly correct. Thank the person for having the courage to come and share with you and whatever, look for the grain of truth and make positive change based. But here's, here's the real bottom line of this. None of that stuff will fix your problem. Sin's dangerous, yes, so live carefully, but you can't live perfectly. Um, live in community, other people can't fix you. Accept the criticism as being part. Well, that's not going to fix you either. You'll just know you're screwed up. Here's the ultimate solution. Here's where Genesis 4 looks back. Looks back to Genesis 3.15, where God says to Cain's mom, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and hers, And listen to this, you snake. He will crush your head. But you will bruise his heel. In his destruction of you, he will be wounded. And we know how that story goes. In Satan's ultimate defeat, our Savior suffered and he died only to rise again. And here's something uh, commentators and, you know, Bible scholars have said for a long time. Um, see where it says uh, between your, that's actually see between your seed and hers. Women, particularly in the Bible, right, and, and even in our world, we talk, women don't have seed. Men have seed. Women have eggs. God says all the way back in Genesis 3, Eve, your seed, wait a minute, there will be no male seed for the one who defeats this enemy. Huh. That's the, the good advice will help you diagnose the problem. The ultimate solution has nothing to do with you and me. The ultimate solution has to do with the one that Genesis 3.15 points to. One last thing as we finish. So we got the promise from Hebrews. I actually read this this morning. Um, this slide was up before then. but In Genesis 12, here's what it says. A- Abel's name comes up again. It says, uh, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember from Genesis 4, God says, Abel's blood is crying out for justice. So something has to be done. What does the writer of Hebrews tell us? Jesus' blood has a better cry. But it's still the cry of justice. Abel's blood cries for justice. I, I'm an innocent sufferer. I was killed in, without justice. Jesus' blood cries incomplete justice. I, as the perfectly innocent one, already paid the debt of those that are mine. In the name of justice, you cannot exact two penalties for the same crime. Jesus' blood has a better cry than Abel's. He cries for justice. His death, covering all of us that are guilty, that put their faith in him.
So weird little story back in Genesis 4. Teaches us a fair bit about sin, God, and is pointing us to, us to the right place. Listen to the good advice, accurately diagnose the problem. But remember, the ultimate solution is not in the good advice and self-help. It's in the one to whom the whole Bible points. The one whose blood cries for justice with a better cry than Abel's. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this story that's full of evil and sin and wickedness and murder and sibling rivalry. And, and thanks for this story that tells us the message we need to hear about sin, sins being serious and dangerous and addictive. And the story tells us about God, that God, you're still a counselor. You're still a revealer that chases us down. And God, you come to deliver us. Lord, I pray that we uh, would look at the incidents in the story of Cain and Abel, but that we'd camp our attention in the rest of our lives on the one to whom he points, Jesus, whose blood cries with a better cry. I've already paid for their sin. Amen.